So this series, as you have just seen and heard, is called Behold. Behold. So I am Pastor Benjamin. If I haven't met you before, great to see you. Um, kids, have your parents or a teacher or someone ever asked you to, to find something and you can't find it? I'm sure that's never happened before. Probably didn't happen this morning. <clears throat> and parents slash any adults in the room, we know what that experience is like when you are dealing with a child that cannot find the necessary item. It's fun, especially when you're late already. It usually goes something like this. Uh, let's pretend the item is a book. Where is your book? I don't know. I couldn't find it. Go look for it. I already did. Where did you look? Everywhere. Did you look in your closet? No. Am I right so far? Am I doing good so far? Go look in your closet. 3.7 seconds later. I didn't see it. You didn't see it or you didn't look for it. And this could go on for a while, right? So usually what happens, at least with me, is I go and I find the thing within 10 seconds, right? That's how that usually goes. Right? Killian, my son, says, yes, that's true. Backing me up. So, <clears throat> but sometimes when kids are, aren't necessarily supposed to be looking for something, they see things so much more than we do, Right? I actually found a study done at Ohio State, sorry, Grant, um, Ohio State University. And that, that hurts, doesn't it? Even just to hear those words. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's true. I didn't make this up. There's a, I found a study from Ohio State that said um, adults are, gener are generally better focusing on one thing, which makes sense. Like we have to do one important thing at a time. But kids... Um, especially four or five years old, see the whole, the whole thing, the whole picture. They see the whole thing and remember the whole scene better than, than uh, we grown-ups can. So this is why kids will tell you some, something sometimes like, did you see the, like, no, not at all. But they've seen something that we have missed. Because there's a difference between seeing and looking, right? A difference between seeing and looking. Everybody who has sight can see. It just happens if your eyes are open, right? You see. Uh, but seeing with intention would be looking, right? When we're looking at something or looking for something, then we're, we're paying attention. There's some intention behind the seeing. And then there is beholding. Beholding. To behold, it goes beyond just seeing, and it even goes beyond looking. Although sometimes we have to see and look to get to a place of beholding. But sometimes there's just something too wonderful and too beautiful, too awe-inspiring and it just draws us into a state of beholding. We all know this place. We all know this place of beholding. 
Have you ever gathered a newborn's tiny feet, the tiny little paws in your hand, like at the end of the video? Have you ever done that? That is something to behold, right? It, It completely captures your attention, studying the details of these miniature adorable feet. Even Pastor Melody couldn't say that those weren't adorable. <laughs> or when you drive over a ridge or around a curve and you, and you see a view, a vista that's so breathtaking that your only agenda becomes, I must look at this. I must pull over and spend time with this view. You behold that vista. Or when you see your kid or someone choose kindness in a situation where they could have easily not that's something to behold. It arrests your attention and you just have to take it in because it's so beautiful. So during this Advent season and this series, we want to stop and behold, not just see, not even just look, but behold the miracle and the mystery of God putting on flesh. The mystery and the miracle of God incarnated. You know, the word behold, it's used several times in the gospel accounts of the incarnation stories, right? And and when I say incarnation, if if you're not familiar with that word, I mean the Christmas story, right? The nativity where the spirit of God took on flesh so that his spirit could be made real in our flesh, right? The birth of God as a baby, Jesus Christ. That's what I mean by uh, the incarnation. So uh, the word behold, it's used throughout these stories several times. Right from the beginning of the New Testament, um, which is the story of the new covenant, right? Jesus' new covenant to love like he loves. In the first gospel account of John, we get this verse, and it was in the video too. Um, and I'm going to the New King James because they still use the word behold in there, beheld. So it says, First John 1, or no, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. Not the Bible, that's not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. Capital W, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld, beheld his glory, beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm not sure if there's a more beautiful verse that I've ever heard. Might be one of my favorites. Last year, our December series was called The Word. Probably most of you remember that. Just shake your head and say yes. Um, And we used this verse as our anchor verse last year as well. And we talked about the Greek word for word, logos, we talked about that, meaning a divine utterance or the expression of God's self, the expression, the essence of God's self embodied in a person of Jesus. That's what that word, word means. And we also talked about the word for dwelt, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about that that, that means, and, and Eugene Peterson puts it this way, moved into the neighborhood, right? And that sounds a little goofy. But when you look at the Greek, that's what it means. It means to pitch a tent with the other tents. 
moved into the street, not the spirit of God in some tabernacle or fancy temple, but the person of God in Jesus Christ moving into where we live, taking on flesh for a regular old human tent. He dwelt among us, Emmanuel. But this year, let's move down further into that verse and focus on the word behold or beheld. We beheld his glory. So we've talked about how the idea of beholding is much deeper than simply seeing or looking. So to explore this word behold, let's go to the Greek. And yay, there it is. This word is fun to say and also hard to say. Theaomai. That's, that's it. That's the one time I'm going to say it. Um, I'm just happy that I nailed it on the first try. It means to behold, to look upon. It's a pretty good translation to say beheld right there. But let's go deeper. So for usage, I see, behold, here you go, contemplate, look upon, view, I see, visit. Now, go to the Helps Word Studies. It comes from theomai, which means to gaze at a spectacle. To gaze at a spectacle, to gaze on or contemplate, to observe intently. Here you go. It's especially to interpret something or grasp its significance, to concentrate on so as to significantly impact the viewer. Do you see how much depth there is to this word behold? Behold. To interpret something or grasp its significance so that it impacts the viewer. And the root of all these words is theatron or theater. So where we get theater, right? So Advent season is a season of beholding the theater, the spectacle of the incarnation of Jesus into this world. So during this season, followers of Jesus, we behold his coming. But back to the verse, what is it exactly, according to John 1.14, that we are beholding? And we beheld his what, church? Glory. And that's a nice word, right? That's a nice word. That sounds beautiful and exciting. But what does that mean? What does that mean? We did a worship series last year, and um, Pastor Melody had used this quote from John Piper, and he's talking about glory, the glory of God. Like, what, is, what does that mean? What are we, it's a big word, right? Small word that holds a lot of stuff. So this is how he puts it. It says, the glory of God is the beauty and excellence of his manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and purity. It refers to his infinite and overflowing fullness of all that is good. Are you getting excited yet? Because I am. 
The term might focus on this, on his different attributes from time to time, like his power and wisdom and mercy and justice, because each one is indeed awesome and beautiful in its magnitude and quality. Here you go. But in general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. And that one infinitely beautiful and personal being is Jesus Christ. That is the glory we behold in the Advent season. The perfect harmony of his attributes poured into one beautiful person of Jesus Christ. But there's something else that's personal here. Let's look at the word glory. We beheld, we know what beheld means now, the depth of that word. Now, we beheld his glory. Let's look at the word glory for a second. So, doxa. Yeah. So, look at this. Opinion. What? Opinion, parentheses, always good in the New Testament. Praise, honor, and glory. Usage, honor, renown, glory, and especially divine quality, the unspoken manifestation of God, splendor. Now look at the word studies here. It helps word studies. Um, It comes from this word, which means exercising personal opinion, which determines value. This is all inside this word glory, okay? Exercising personal opinion, which determines value. And it corresponds to the Old Testament word for glory, cabo, which means to be heavy, weighty, the weight of his glory, right? Both terms convey God's infinite intrinsic worth, substance or essence. Isn't that interesting? Exercising personal opinion, which determines value. This word for glory, it's personal. It's personal. Glory feels like a word that's out there, right? Like the shepherds looking at the night sky, like, oh, glory. Look at the angels. This is amazing. But glory is something that when we behold it, it becomes personal. Remember, impacts the viewer. It's when our personal esteem for Jesus begins to feel the weight of his worth and his beauty and his truth. But there's a great irony in our faith, isn't there? There always has been. We have an ironic Savior and an ironic kingdom. We do. But it's only ironic when you consider the way of the world, right? For the world, glory is in the majestic, in the big, in the loud, in the mighty, And yes, there's that kind of glory with Jesus too. But here is the mystery of Christmas. Here's the mystery of the incarnation. All of that glory of God becomes personal to us. All of that glory of God, the perfect symphony of his attributes in the person of Jesus becomes personal to us because we behold that glory in the form of a human baby. 
That is the mystery and the miracle of Christmas, of the incarnation. I remember when my daughter Emery was born. She's in here today, 13 years ago. And uh, she came in an unexpected and dramatic fashion. Um, but there has been no other drama since that day. Um, She came four weeks early. She came during a tropical storm. And I, uh, I looked that up. I Googled that. It was tropical storm Alberto, just so you know. Um, but I remember this feeling of miracle. I remember the feeling of a miracle. Childbirth, it's, it's so common. It's crucial to our continued survival as a species, right? Something that's occurred billions of times on the planet over and over. But it was no less miraculous this time with my first child because it was personal. It was personal. She was my child. So if any of them were miracles, this one was a miracle. That pregnancy, the growth of my daughter, and that long, kind of scary, arduous day of her birthday. And when I saw her, she was a little little peanut. The the surgeon said, oh, we have a peanut. And what he meant was a tiny one. Um, But when I saw her, it, it was something to behold. Yes? It was something to behold, and it was a miracle. It's a miracle every time. You know, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was tasked with announcing the arrival of Jesus on the scene. Like, Jesus is here to do what he came to do. So this is how John put it when he saw Jesus approaching for the first time. In John 1 29. And then again in 35 the next day. So let's read these. So John 1 29. Uh, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, here you go, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And verse 35. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, all the glory of God in this person. And the metaphor that John goes with here is the Lamb, the Lamb of God to drive this point home. A lamb, a baby sheep, right, kids? That's what a lamb is, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God that we behold. Again, the irony that the salvation of the world should come through an innocent lamb. Not a worldly king, not a conqueror, not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb who was slain. In Revelation, John, who has written this beautiful verse about we beheld his glory, um, He records this super epic dream, vision, prophecy, symbolic, apocalyptic narrative that we call Revelation, right? 
And in it, he's guided by these elders to heaven where he witnesses all of this symbolic dreamlike drama unfold, right? Book of Revelation. So John sees in this vision, um, he sees one who sits on the throne and he's holding a scroll. Bear with me. This is, this is awesome, but you got to stay with me, okay? There's one who sits on the throne holding this scroll, but the scroll is sealed. And to open the scroll seems like that might symbolize what it would be to open and read and reveal and institute God's plans for justice and shalom in the world, okay? God's plan for redemption into the world. And, but there's no one worthy to open the scroll. That's the problem. No one's worthy to open this scroll and this vision dream thing that John is in. And not even the, 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 the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Moses, nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And they look through the live people and the dead people and nobody can open the scroll in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. So John, fearing that there's nobody to finish God's plan in the universe, begins to weep in despair. There's no one to do this work, to open and read this scroll. But his guide says, wait. This is Revelation 5, 5. He says, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. He's talking about Jesus. But when John looks up, this is what he sees. Go to Revelation 5 and verse 6. This is what John sees. So the elder says, hey, it's the line of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy to open the scroll. John looks up, verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Pause right there. What did the elder say to look for? You can say a church. A lion. But when John looks, he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. How beautiful is that? And they sang a new song saying, here's their song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, lamb, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, not the line of the tribe of just Judah, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, the rest of the song, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. 
because they were from the south. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The coming of the glory, the essence of God into a baby named Jesus, the Lamb of God, means that we are still on the right track toward the one true narrative of redemption being written. It's already written. It's already done. And that means it's already done right now for us, even though we can't see that the scroll is open and being read. We can't see the end, but because he came as the Lamb of God, that is how he conquered. Here's how Brian Zahn puts it. He says, there is no lion in Revelation, only a lamb, a little slaughtered lamb. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah only in that he is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. But when we look for Jesus to be a lion, we see only a lamb. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He reigns not as predatory lion, but as a sacrificial lamb. Part of the divine comedy of Revelation is how the beasts of empire are conquered, not by another beast, but by a tiny slaughtered lamb. Jesus is the meek lamb who inherits the earth. Jesus is not king of the beasts. He is not a beast at all. Jesus is the lamb of God. The kingdom of God does not conquer the world by the violent means of the beast, but by the self-sacrificing way of the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we beheld his glory. This is why John the Baptist sees Jesus walking up and cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. Because it's Jesus, the unlikely hero, wherein all the glory of God resides. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who defeats the darkness through his simple, innocent birth and his sacrificial death and his resurrection. I invite you, I invite all of us, church, to take time this season, yes. This month, yes. Today, yes. This moment, take time to be still, to be still. And not just see and not just look for Jesus, the Lamb of God, but to behold the Lamb in the manger, to behold the glory of the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb who is worthy to carry out the redemption and the restoration and the execution of shalom in this world. What could it look like, church, for you, for me, to truly begin to behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ this season? What could that look like? We're going to continue this conversation throughout December. We're going to see how next week, when we behold this glory, really behold it, we begin to marvel. We begin to marvel 
at what we are beholding. And then we believe, and then we will adore and worship from that place. So, the band can come back up. Let's go ahead and pray. God, would you teach us and lead us and guide us into a place where we can choose to be still, we can choose to truly not just look for you and hope that we hope that we encounter you somehow in the busy Christmas season, but that we look with intention, that we look with a purpose of being able to truly start to behold all that you are. God, deepen our affection for Jesus this season. Impress on our hearts a little bit more than before the depth of the mystery and the beauty of the miracle that it is for the glory of God to be incarnated into a baby, a lamb. Yeah, God, teach us that. Teach us to sit in that. Teach us to behold.